So let's continue talking about this today. No greater love. That comes from the book of John chapter 15, verse 13. Put that up on the screen for us in the New Living Translation. Jesus said, there is, and say these words with me, no greater love. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. That's the greatest love. If you'll back up in that same chapter, John chapter 15, and let's read a few verses around that. Jesus said, beginning in verse 12, he said, this is my what? Commandment. This is a commandment coming from the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church. This is my commandment that you love one another. How? As I have loved you. Now the commandment to love is nothing new, but like we've said already today, for the first time, the commandment comes with the power to do it. And that's what grace is. It's the power to do what God's called you to do. It's the power to be what God's created you to be. Without that grace, without that enabling, you're left to your own might and the, 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 the strength of this flesh. And under that strength, there's not enough. You don't have enough to do what you've been called to do. In and of yourself, you are not enough to be what you've been called to be. But with that calling and with that command comes the grace, the strength, the power, and the enabling to do all that you've been called to do and to be all that you've been called to be. So with this command to love each other comes the grace, the power, the strength, the enabling to love each other. And be honest about it. You need some God level strength to walk in love with each other. We've said it before, but if you're trying to walk in love under your own strength, you're going to fail at it every single time. And the devil's going to be waiting right there with that hammer of condemnation going, man, you are bad at this Christian thing. And there are other people going, man, I'd be an excellent Christian if it weren't for other people. No, if it weren't for other people, there'd be no reason. You, you, you need other people to, to demonstrate the love of God to, to show the love of God to. But you need this grace. You need this enabling to do it the way you've been called to do it. This is my commandment, Jesus said, that you love each other as I have loved you. There's the example. Love one another as I have loved you. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. This is my commandment. What's the commandment? Love each other. You're my friends if you do what I command you. You're my friends, Jesus said. There should be no other and no greater and no more sincere desire in the heart of a believer than friendship with Jesus. I mean, can you think of something that you should want more than that? And if you and I are true believers and true disciples, then the sincerest desire of our hearts should be friendship and fellowship with Jesus. And he said, that's available to you. We can have that. We can have intimacy 
with him. We can have closeness and friendship and fellowship with him. But this is the way into it. He said, you are my friends if, and that is a very big if. You are my friends. We're good, he's saying. We're close. We can have friendship. We can have fellowship if, if what? If you do what I tell you to do. And we laughed about it last week, but that's kind of a strange stipulation for friendship, isn't it? I don't know that that would fly among us so much. But back up and think about what he's saying here. You and I can be friends. We can be good if you do what I tell you. Okay, what did he tell you? What was the commandment? So put that in there. I call you friends if you love one another. Okay, how do we love one another? As he loved us. How did he love us? He laid himself aside. He laid down his life. So put that in there. We can be friends. I call you friends if you lay aside your life for somebody else. That is our ticket, if you will, into friendship with Jesus. I don't know that we've made that connection as as clearly as we should have. My friendship with him is only limited by how much I'm willing to lay my life down for you. Jesus is saying we can be as close as you want to be. The only thing I require is you love each other the way I loved you. Our friendship with him depends on that. Now you go back to John chapter 13 and you see exactly what he's talking about here. What is this love each other like I have loved you? He's talking past tense here. So there's something that Jesus has done to illustrate and demonstrate his love for us. And that's what we see in John chapter 13. If you look in verse 34, you hear these words, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. How? As I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, by what? By this love, by the way you love each other, all will know that you are my disciples for you have loved one another. You're my friends if you do what I command you. What's that mean? That's Jesus saying, we can be friends if you love one another. We can be friends if you lay aside your life. And what he's doing here in John chapter 13 is serving. That's what this entire chapter was about. It's the last supper. And I don't know if the disciples realized it or not, but it was their last supper with him. And he took that opportunity. And the Bible says here in John chapter 13 that he laid aside his garments. If you've been with us, you know that that is the exact same word translated, lay down your life. And that's what Jesus is demonstrating, the laying aside of one thing and putting something else on. He laid aside his garments and he put on the towel of a servant and he began to wash their feet. He said some interesting things to them as he washed their feet. He says, you don't know what I've done for you. You might be sitting there going, yeah, I do. You just wash my feet. But he's saying, no, there's more to it than this. He's saying, I have served you. And it was this, this example, this demonstration that he was pointing at and said, what I just did for you, do for each other. And there's no greater love than this. And I can tell weeks into this, we're still endeavoring to wrap our minds around it. I can tell it when I say it. That 
That's the greatest love? According to Jesus, yes. The greatest love is when you're willing to take something off, whether it's place, position, pride, power, whatever it is, and you lay that aside and you put on the towel of a servant and you serve your friends. You serve one another. I was walking around the house yesterday afternoon and uh, yesterday evening I was getting the kids ready for bed and Sarah and I are getting ready for church and I walk into the kids' bathroom and actually on the way to the bathroom was the towel Justice had dried off with that night. When I got into the bathroom was the towel that he had dried off with the night before and they're both laying there on the floor. How many of you with with kids have ever said, pick up your towel? You see it just laid out there. What do you say, mom? What do you say, dad? Pick up your towel. Can I tell you, I hear the Lord saying the same thing to us. Pick up your towel. That towel of a servant. These are our church clothes. Not what we wear to the church, but what we wear because we are the church. No greater love than this right here. Than to lay aside one thing and put something else on. This towel of a servant. And this is what Jesus did, and this is what he was pointing at when he said, do this for each other, because there's no greater love than this. Now listen to what he said here in verse 35 again. He said, by this, by what? By this kind of love, specifically this love, this love that serves. By this love that serves, all will know that you are my disciples If you have this kind of love one for another, all will know. In other words, this is supposed to be the distinguishing characteristic of us as believers and us as disciples. This is supposed to be that defining thing that separates us from the rest of this world. And there's so much going on in the world right now. And most of it motivated by mankind's enemy. Satan himself to magnify all these little differences between people. And it's, man, it is showing its ugly head all over again. You got the, these little differences between people and Satan comes along and he tries to magnify it. And if people get to looking at that difference and, and, and meditating on that difference and eventually they begin to magnify that difference, the difference between man and, and, and woman and, and, and employer and employee and, and this skin color and that skin color and everybody starts to magnify all the differences between us. It's in an effort to pit each other against, excuse me, against us, this is not the biggest difference. These things are not the biggest differences that could exist between humans. The biggest difference that could possibly exist between two people is not their skin color. It's not their gender. It's not their nationality. It's not their socioeconomic status. The biggest difference that could exist between two people is one's born again And one is not. One has a spirit that's alive unto God and one that's dead on the inside. This is the biggest difference that could possibly exist. Now I say possibly because far too often there's not enough difference between the born again one and the unsaved. But there is supposed to be a difference. Supposed to be. And there's supposed to be a big difference. 
There's supposed to be a massive difference. And we are not supposed to be living our lives in an effort to blend into this world. There's supposed to be a difference. As a believer, sometimes I just feel so different. You are. You are so different. And if the rest of this world is so-called normal, then be weird. Be strange. I mean, come on. If strange is, is healed and whole and prospering and happy and full of joy, then call me strange. Slap me and call me strange. There's supposed to be a difference between us and them. They're supposed to be. And what Jesus is saying here is this is the difference. By this, everybody's going to know you belong to me. Everybody's going to know you've been pulled out from the crowd. Everybody's going to know you've been separated. You've been called by me and you belong to me. What's the difference? How do they know the difference? It's this love right here. Because this love, this self-sacrificing, laying aside and laying down of your life is not normal. It's not normal. By this, Jesus said, all will know that you are my disciples. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Put this on the screen for us. Philippians 2 verse 1. This is another verse we've looked at several times through the course of this series. But I want to read it again and pull out something we haven't looked at closely yet. The Bible says in Philippians 2 verse 1, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy, how? By being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. You know, as the pastors of this church, Sarah and I could say the exact same thing to you, this family, this, this congregation, fulfill our joy, make us happier than we could ever imagine. How do you do that? By being like-minded. That doesn't mean we all share the exact same opinions on every single thing, but we all have this one thing on our mind. We love each other and it's a love that lays its own life aside. Fulfill my joy, he said, by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now listen to this. Look at it. Let nothing, how many things? Nothing. nothing. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Let nothing be done. He's talking about motivation here. Don't do anything in this church or in this life, motivated by selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, he said, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. This is the difference. This is the big difference right here between us and them. Motivation. What gets us out of bed? What gets us here? What gets us to the places we go in life? What gets us to where we are going in life? What's the motivation? And this is the difference. It's the big difference. He said, as the body of Christ, 
We're not to do anything out of selfish ambition. Now, some of your other translations use the word strife, which is really interesting to me because this Greek word that we would translate strife is also, like you see here, translated to selfish ambition. It's almost as though it's translated two different ways. One way it's translated to what it is, and the other way it's translated to what it produces. It's translated to selfish ambition. That's what it is. Strife is what it produces. Strife is what it results in. Strife is the fruit of selfish ambition. Now, the word strife itself, when you look this up, you remember James chapter 3 that says where there is envy and strife. Other translations say where there's envy and selfish ambition. I keep almost saying shellfish. I'm not saying shellfish. You understand that, right? Selfish. Where there is envy and selfish ambition, he said there is confusion and every evil work. Now, a lot of times we think of strife as two people just not getting along. And there is an element of that. But listen to what the word itself actually means. Strife it means a fractious or a party spirit. Party. Party as in political parties. Not, woohoo, let's party. <laughs> party as in I belong to a party. I'm a, I'm a member of this party. Isn't that interesting? The word strife is a political term. A fractious or party spirit. It literally refers to political parties. Listen to this. One of the usages of this word has to do with electioneering or intriguing for office. A desire to put one's self forward. I mean, come on. Is the Bible describing the political system of the United States of America and basically every political system around the world? Somebody putting themselves forward, electioneering, right? Being a part of a party, Identifying with this party, it is a partisan and fractious spirit, are you ready for this, which does not disdain low arts. It does not disdain low arts. What in the world does that mean? This is somebody so entrenched in their political ideals and ideologies and so consumed with this blind ambition for office that they'll do whatever it takes to get there. Blind ambition. It does not disdain low arts. In other words, hey, we got to cheat, we got to cheat. We got to lie, we got to lie. We got to steal, we got to steal. Whatever it takes for me to achieve that place, that rank, that position. That's the word strife. Now, can you see the connection between selfish or blind ambition and strife? One is what it is. The other is what it produces. It's a fractious spirit that does not disdain low arts, a self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. This is what strife is. 
And it doesn't just relegate itself to literal politics. How many know there, there are political things that go on in churches? There are political things that go on in offices and businesses. You've probably worked in a place before and said, oh, it's just so political. There are political things that go on in high school. There are political things that go on in, in homes. It all comes back to this quest for the highest rank, this quest for the highest place of position and power. And every time you have that, you have strife. Now, the Lord gave me something yesterday, early in the morning, and, and it came to me in a way that it doesn't normally. And I wrote some things down, and I'm just going to read it to you. I'm going to read it to you exactly the way the Lord gave it to me, and then we'll talk some more about it. We're talking about the difference. What is supposed to be the difference between us and them? This is the way the Lord said it to me. In the family of God, we are told to esteem others better than ourselves. We are commanded to look out not only for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. We are under strict orders not to do anything motivated by selfish ambition or the quest for personal glory. But this way of living is night and day different from the world's way. Selfish ambition, the ardent desire for rank, fame, or power is the way of the whole world and is something that is encouraged, praised, and even rewarded. The ungodly preach, there's no one better than you. Everyone must acknowledge you, accept you, and approve you. And you must make it your aim to cancel anyone who doesn't in an effort to protect yourself, promote yourself, and provide for yourself. You must make a way for yourself. That's what this ungodly world preaches. The problem is that this ambition will only ever produce one thing, strife. And the evidence is all around us. There is strife between men and women, between employer and employee, between this skin and that skin. Whether it's strife in a nation between people groups or strife in a home between a husband and wife, you can be assured that the root is ambition and the stinking exaltation of self. And people who are living motivated by this selfish and blind ambition are being held up in the world as examples for all the little boys and all the little girls to follow. Have you noticed this? But the only problem is that the ensuing result is the indoctrination of a generation to believe that there's no one better than them. And then because of that, they are not to serve, but they are to be served. There's supposed to be a difference. I said there is supposed to be a difference. Selfish ambition. You're familiar with the term I've already used, blind ambition. Well, what are you blind to 
when this desire, the word itself defined as this ardent desire for rank, power, and fame, if you're motivated with this ambition, what is it you are blind to? Everyone else. You see no one else. No mindfulness of how what you are doing is affecting anyone else. And I want to show this to you in the scriptures. Go to the book of Mark with me. Chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Look at verse 33. It's kind of a funny story. It says, he, Jesus, came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, uh, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? He's talking to the disciples. And it's like, he's asking this like he doesn't know, which is funny. Hey, guys, um, we were walking. What? What was it y'all were arguing about? Great. What's happening? Arguing. Disputing. But this is funny. They kept silent. For on the road, they had disputed among themselves what? Who would be the greatest? And when Jesus asked them, what were y'all arguing about? They knew it. They know they should not be arguing about this. I'm not telling them. You tell them. I'm not telling them. What are they arguing over? Who's going to be the greatest? Is there strife happening right here? What's it over? Who's the greatest? Who has the highest rank? Who gets the highest place? And they're arguing over it. It says in verse 35, he sat down and called the 12 and said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Here's the difference. This love that serves. And this is completely foreign to the world we live in. And sadly, it's completely foreign to much of the church. People get it in their head as, you know, teenagers and even in their 20s. All right, it's my time. It's my turn. I need to go lead something. I need to be in charge. I need my own thing. And they've completely lost and tried to skip over this whole phase of life that is supposed to be dedicated to serving. Serving. And it seems like generations before ours, and I know I have representatives in here from generations before mine. Am I telling the truth? Was there more, was there more of a concept built in to the culture at that time that was like this? You serve. You don't just get handed something. You find somebody to serve. You give of your life. You don't go looking for a paycheck, first of all. You look for the privilege of serving somebody. You look for the honor of being brought in close and somebody telling you, this is how you do it. This is what you do. This is what you don't do. You looked for that. And it seems like now we're trying to skip that entire phase and go right to the greatest. I want my own thing. Give me my own ministry. Give me my own church. Give me my own corporation. Give me my own business. Who you been serving? I ain't got time for serving. I'm already 22. 
Jesus said, and this was supposed to end the argument. This was supposed to stop the strife. He said, anybody who wants to be great, here's what they've got to do. Serve. Serve. And you would think that these guys would be like, mm, you're right. Sure. Makes sense. Go to the next chapter. Look at Mark chapter 10. Look around verse 35. Now here's what's interesting before I read this. The account that we read in John chapter 13, where Jesus lays aside his garments, puts on the, the form of a servant, and washes the disciples' feet, that's in no other gospel and in no other place in scripture than right there. But what is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that's not in John is what we're about to read right here. Look at this, verse 35, Mark 10, 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus saying, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. Now, when you put this together with some of the other accounts, it's, it's really pretty funny. Matthew's account has it that their mother came to Jesus. Embarrassing, right? But it's essentially the same thing. And she asked the same question that these guys, that, that Mark's account has these guys asking Jesus. So get the picture here. They've pulled Jesus aside. The other 10 are over there. James and John, brothers, they're like, hey, can, can we talk to you real quick? Yeah, sure. What you need? Can, can, you, can you come over here? We want you to do whatever we ask. <laughs> if you have kids, you know, you know what's about to happen here. Whenever your kids come and say, Daddy, I'm going to ask you a question. Promise me you'll say yes. <laughs> come on, parents, help me out. Am I telling the truth? You have to say yes. If your child comes to you and, and predetermines that you have to say yes, what do you know the answer is going to be? No, no. Promise me you'll say yes. This is what James and John are saying to Jesus. Do whatever we ask. And Jesus says, uh, what do you want? What do you want me to do for you? And listen to what they want. They said to him, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. What are they asking for? Well, to, to answer that, you've kind of got to know what's in their mind. Jesus, he's the one they've been looking for, but he didn't come the way they were expecting. And he talks so much about the kingdom of God and what they were expecting was a political leader, a new kingdom, a new political system, a new political party that's going to be in power, the Messiah, right? He's the one that's going to come and change everything, but they're looking to the natural. They're looking to the natural system, the natural order of things, and they're waiting for this particular government to be overthrown so that God can set up this other government and this other political system headed up by this political leader named Jesus Christ. And so what we want to do is pull him aside. We don't want the others to hear it because we want a seat. We want a place 
in this party. Grant that one of us can sit on your right hand and the other on your left hand in your glory, in your kingdom. This is what we want you to do for us. What are they asking for? Place, position, power, rank. Now this is pretty ambitious, isn't it? I said, this is pretty ambitious to pull Jesus aside. I mean, you got to have some guts. You got to have some nerve to say, I'm going to ask you something, but you got to promise me you're going to say yes. This is ambitious. But look at what Jesus said. In response to them asking for this place, Jesus said to them, you don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm kind of thirsty now. You got the cup on you. I'll take a drink. Sure. James is like, John, you good? John's like, I'm good. You good, James? Yeah, we'll drink. We'll be baptized. That sounds nice. No idea. And that's what Jesus said to him. You don't even know what you're asking. You're asking and you don't know the cup I'm about to drink. You don't know the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with. And they're like, yeah, don't totally. We're good. We're in. We're down. We can do it. And Jesus said to him in the very next verse, okay. He said, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I'm baptized with, you will be baptized. Now listen to this, verse 40. This is so huge. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it's for those for whom it's been prepared. Jesus said, you're asking for something I can't give you. Seriously, there's something that Jesus could not give to these guys? What was it Jesus couldn't give? He could not. It was not his to give that position. It wasn't his to give that rank. That catches me a little funny. I read that and think, sure you can, Jesus. You're Jesus. <laughs> Just give it to him if you want to. And what's he say? It's not mine to give. What I don't know that we've rightly understood, especially in the church, is that in the kingdom of God, position and place and rank is not to be sought after with a blind, selfish ambition. You and I must realize that position and place in the kingdom of God can only be given by God himself. And Jesus said, you're asking for something that's not mine to give. I'm going to talk to you more about that here in just a second, but I want you to see what happened. Verse 41, when the 10 heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. Matthew's account says, when the 10 heard it, they were greatly displeased. One translation says, angrily indignant. Can you see what happened? What's the result of selfish ambition? Strife. The 10 heard it. And they got so mad, angrily indignant at the two. What are they so mad about that they didn't think to go ask? <laughs> That's what they're mad about. 
Because the last chapter, they're all arguing over who's going to be the greatest. And Peter's like, well, obviously, guys, it's me. And John's like, what are you talking about, obviously? I'm the one he loves. I'm going to be the greatest. And Thaddeus is like, and everybody's like, Thaddeus, who's Thaddeus? Never heard of you. And down the line, everybody's fighting over who's going to be the greatest. And in Jesus' own company, in Jesus' own staff, there's this outbreak of strife because of selfish, blind ambition. And guess what? If it happened... If it happened in the 12 that are walking in a single file line behind him, guess where else it can happen? It can happen in this room. It can happen in this house. It can happen in my house. It can happen in your house unless we guard, unless we guard against it, unless we wake up every day and realize there's supposed to be a difference. That's the way this world does things, motivated by this blind, selfish ambition and it's praised. Did you hear what the Lord said through that just a moment ago? This way of living, it's actually encouraged. It's actually praised. It's even rewarded when people live motivated by this ambition. And we do. We stand around and clap and ooh and ah over people who've made it a great way in their lives. Oh man, the ambition. Look at the ambition that they've got. Be careful over whose life you allow to inspire you. Because what you don't know is there may be a line of people behind them that have been stepped on, lied to, cheated on, lied about, not always and not necessarily, but most of the time, especially when you see this blind ambition, you will see what it results in, and that is strife, the very manifest presence of the devil, and it stinks. The Bible tells us how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together. How? In unity. He used the word pleasant to describe it. He talked about how it's like that anointing oil that flowed over the head and down the beard of Aaron, even all the way to his garments, how pleasant it was. And one of the defining things about that oil was the recipe and the way it was made and the combinations of cinnamon and spices and the olive oil. And it produced this, this fragrant aroma that would just infuse the place and it smelled so good. And that's what God's saying unity's like. To him, unity smells so good. Well, if you know that about unity, what do you also know about strife? It stinks. It stinks. It stinks. It stinks. This exaltation of self stinks. This putting oneself forward in an, in an effort to gain place and rank in the nostrils of God, it stinks. And James 3 even says that where there's envy and strife, selfish ambition, there's confusion in every evil work. Those words evil work are the Greek words phallos, which is where we get our word foul. Literally talking about a stench so foul, so putrid that you can't stand to be around it. It repulses and repels you. And where strife is, that foul odor is in the same place. Light all the candles you want, but until strife goes away, that's the spiritual smell 
that's filling the house. And God can't be around it. He won't be around it. So what's the answer to this? When the ten heard it, verse 41, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Listen to what he said. Verse 43. Yet it shall not be so among you. What's he saying? They're supposed to be a difference. He said, you know, guys, come here. Shut up. Quit arguing. Sit down, Jesus said. He said, you know that in the world, in, in and among the Gentiles, they're great ones. You know how they exercise their authority over people. You know how they lord over people. And this is, a, this is supposed to not be in this church or in the body of Christ. We're actually only supposed to have one Lord. We're not supposed to try to be lords over anybody else. He said, but in the world, people like to take that place of Lord over over their workers, over their family, over their friends, over the people they do life with. You, you know that people in the world exercise that, that lordship and that authority over them. But I want you to hear Jesus say it, and I want you to hear the way I believe he said it. It will not be this way among you. Sometimes I think we read Jesus' words way too flowery, way too sweetly. Yet it shall not be so among you. I don't think that's what he said at all. Boys, it's not going to be this way. It will not be this way in this house. Fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, listen. Lead like Jesus. And if this stuff is going on in the home, then it may be time for a family meeting. And it may be time for the head of that house to say, it's not going to be this way in this house. We are not trying to get place and get rank over each other. And if somebody's got to repent, husbands lead the way. Demonstrate it. Because wherever this selfish ambition exists, strife is the result. And Jesus is saying, they're supposed to be a difference. It's not going to be this way in this house. Do you mind if I get bold on you here just for a second? As the under shepherd of this house, I'm telling you, it's not going to be that way in this house. It is not going to be that way in this house. There are a lot of things that Sarah and I as leaders would be merciful towards and gracious towards because the Lord has been so merciful, so gracious towards us. But there are other things that need to be dealt with head on and in a hurry. Not tolerated, not allowed to persist. And this strife is one of those things. What hit me about 6.30 this morning is that what we need as individuals is the recovery of sight for blind ambition. 
This, this is one of the major markers of Jesus' ministry as the Messiah. The blind receive their sight. Well, what does somebody who's living with blind ambition need? They need some sight. They need to recover their sight. The recovery of sight for blind ambition. Jesus said, it's not going to be this way among you. We're not going to have this blind ambition, this, this ardent desire for rank and power and fame. He said, whoever desires to become great among you shall be your, say it out loud, church, servant. There's the answer and there's the difference. Right there. Now, you could read this and think what Jesus was correcting was that desire to be great. That's not the case. He wasn't correcting the desire to be great. You have an inborn God-born desire on the inside of you for greatness. There's something on the inside of every one of us that cries out for greatness. You want to matter in this life. You want to have an impact in this life. You want to leave a mark in this world and on this world. And if you're a born-again believer, you want to do it for Jesus. And you want men to see your good works, but not glorify you. Glorify your Father who's in heaven. So Jesus is not correcting this desire to be great. He's just changing the way you go about it, the way you get there. And he's changing it by saying, if you desire to be great, here's how you get there. Serve. Serve. Now, you, you and I both know this is not what's going on in the world, but there's supposed to be a difference. Verse 44, whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave or servant of all. And this is what Jesus said, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Some people have said to be or not to be. That's the question. No, it's not the question. To serve or to be served. That's the question. Are you living motivated by this blind ambition to be served? Or are you living this different life that Jesus has called us to live, this life that defines us as disciples and believers, motivated by who we can serve? It's different. I said it's different. And what he was correcting was not this desire for greatness, but the way you go about it. I'll say this to you as we begin to close. You remember what Jesus said in John chapter 13, after he had washed the disciples' feet. I feel like I've been trying to get to this for weeks, and, and I believe the Lord's helped us to get right here. John chapter 13. Jesus said, in ver the Bible says in verse 12, when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. Verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. 
Blessed. 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 Blessed, I said. Blessed, Jesus said. Blessed are you if you do these things. What is the blessing? Because that's a big word. It can encompass a lot of things. What is the blessing? When we moved here several years ago to start this church, there was people that came with us, people that came from different parts of the country. Some of them whom you see on the platform now, our staff all moved their lives, their families came to serve, came to serve the Lord, serve us, serve you. And there were people that came and said, they moved their family and said, hey, we're here. We're here to help. We're here to serve. And then when we gave them something to do, they kind of looked at us funny. Like, I don't want to do that. Well, that's what we need you to do. We've prayed about it. We've sought the Lord and this is what we need. No, I want to do this. This is what I'm good at. This is what I've got experience in. This is, I, you, you should have asked me to do this. And what people don't realize and that we've only just now realized as we've stepped into this office as pastors is there are places in this church that aren't ours to give. It's not up to Jeremy and Sarah to put this one in leadership or that one in leadership or this one over that program or this one over the kids and this one over the worship. That's not mine to give. If I'm going to lead like Jesus, I've got to go before the Lord and find out from him. Who have you put in these places? Who have you assigned there? And we've, we literally had people move their whole family here to come help. But when they didn't get the place they wanted, the place they thought they should have been given, literally, literally had people say to us, I had just envisioned us walking hand in hand and opening this church together. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> hand in hand? One on your right hand, one on your left. Now you listen to it and you think, well, what's wrong with that? A lot. Number one, I didn't ask for anybody to hold my hand. That wasn't what we were looking for. And number two, you're expecting a place that's not ours to give. That belongs to somebody for whom it has been prepared. Who does that belong to? Those willing to serve. And it breaks your heart to think about it. I mean, people who move their entire lives and it's not just happened here. It's happened in places and churches and people's lives all over the world. It, it nearly just breaks your heart. They didn't even stick around long enough for the church to get open, gone, out of fellowship. What that seeking of place and rank and position, what it produced was division and strife when they didn't get what they thought they deserved or were entitled to. I guess what I'm saying to you this morning is it's not going to be that way in this house. It will not be this way among us. 
And if there's something in you that desires place and desires greatness, good. I'm glad. I want to help you get there. You want to know how? Serve. Serve. Why don't you stand up with me? I know this is, some of this is sobering, so let me fix all that real quick. <laughs> I want you to see what the blessing is on serving. Out of Jesus' own mouth, blessed are you if you do this. What is the blessing? We've been reading out of Philippians 2. Don't let anything be done through selfish ambition. Esteem others better than themselves. Verse 5, listen to this. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Has anybody ever made that confession before? I have the mind of Christ. I have the mind of Christ. Be careful, because this is what you're saying. Are you ready? Let this mind be in you that was in Jesus, who being in the form of God. Is that you? Have you been created in the likeness and the image of God? Yes, you have been. Did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, a lot of translations do a lot of different things with this, but just take it right there on face value. Jesus did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He was not taking anything away from God to be considered equal with God. You want to know what that is? Righteousness. These things apply to you. You created in the image of God. You created in the likeness of God. You made right and righteous by the blood of Jesus. Let this mind, the same mind be in you. I'm in the image of God. He has elevated me to his level. But verse seven says, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Verse 9, you ready? Therefore, or in light of Jesus humbling himself and serving us, this is what happened. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name. The Bible doesn't talk to us a lot about the position Jesus held before coming to the earth. But I know the position he holds after because he humbled himself and he served. Therefore, God exalted him. God gave him place. God gave him rank. God gave him authority. Guess what happens when you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God? What's the result, church? You will be exalted. You will be elevated. See, God is not opposed to you and I being exalted. He's just opposed to us doing it ourselves. Let him do it. Let him do it. How do we get there? So easy. Serve. And you come not with any other motivation or ambition. You come just ready and willing. And you know what's so fascinating to, to me about this? Right after Jesus had this discussion with these guys, anybody want to be great? And they're all like, yeah, me. Serve. You want to know what the very next thing that happens in Mark chapter 10? Blind Bartimaeus gets his sight. Jesus goes walking and this guy's crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And they brought 
Bartimaeus' tomb, and there he is, blind, can't see a thing, just hands out, trying to feel around, and Jesus looks at him and goes, what do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus is like, (laughs) you know what he said? That I might receive my sight. You know what I wrote in my Bible right there? Me too, Lord. Because the only thing worse than natural blindness is spiritual blindness. So today is all about the recovery of sight for blind ambition. And I'm not so naive to think that it can't make its way in here, that there's not somebody in here that hasn't been motivated by that. We've all dealt with it. It's the nature of the flesh, but there's supposed to be a difference. We are that difference. What is that difference? The way we love each other. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed this message. If you need someone to pray with you, there are several ways for you to contact us. Feel free to give us a call at 817-577-0180. You can also contact us through the Legacy Studios app or either of our websites. Giving options are available online at pearsonsministries.com and legacychurch.family. If you prefer, you can also text an offering. Simply text LEGACY in any dollar amount to the number 28950 and follow the prompts. Be blessed today. We love you. And remember, you are always welcome here in the House of Faith.